In this episode, we had the fortune to be joined by someone who does something called mental skills coaching. You'll get to meet him in a moment. He is a former major league pitcher, been to the all-star game, so pretty elite. And sports, specifically baseball, over the years has become more and more open to the mental side of the game to help with performance. But there is very many real-world applications to these mental skills and attitudes and approaches is certainly not limited to baseball and sports. But he's had really cool experiences. He's a good guy. And after he retired from baseball, he started working with elite athletes, World Series winning teams on this side of the game to help them work on the mind so that they could perform better. So I'm sure that you are going to get something out of it that's relevant to your life and he's very engaging and enjoyable to hear his stories. As always, we appreciate any way that you can support us. This is Mental Filter. Welcome back, everybody, to Mental Filter, where we have the opportunity to have conversations with interesting people about interesting experiences, all through the lens of mental health, which is extremely, extremely relevant. Before I allow my co-host for the day to introduce himself, and I can practically guarantee that it'll be a treat for you, just as it's a treat for me. If you get anything out of this podcast, really. The best way to support us is to take a moment and maybe rate it, perhaps review, perhaps share. We would appreciate that. That's the way we get more exposure and get more ears to the podcast. So without further ado, Bob, can you let everyone know who you are? Sure, Sam. I appreciate you having me on here and um, think your podcast is wonderful. I'm thrilled to be part of it and talk some many aspects today of mental performance. But yeah, my name is Bob Tewksbury. I'm a certified mental performance consultant and former major league pitcher. I pitched 18 years professionally with six different teams. I won over 100 games in the major leagues, made an all-star team. And then after retiring, I completed my bachelor's and then later a master's in sports psychology and counseling And for the last 17 years, I've been working as a mental skills coach with the Boston Red Sox, the San Francisco Giants, and the Chicago Cubs, and now have my own private practice, Bob Tewksbury Mental Skills Consulting, and working out of my office here in Wells, Maine, and it's wonderful. I saw our discussion topics, and I really look forward to to sharing some really good information with the listeners. Amazing. Thank you. And I, uh, selfishly, people already know this who've listened before. I grew up in Chicago. I'm a Cubs fan. Told my son last night, hey, I'm having someone on the podcast last night. And he didn't really have much of a choice if he could be a Cubs fan, even though I don't live in Chicago (laughs) anymore. But I said, hey, you know, we're having someone who who pitched for the Cubs. And he was like, "I, I think I earned a couple of brownie points. Oh, good. I didn't, I didn't pitch well for the Cubs, but I did pitch for the Cubs. <laughs> we'll take it. Yeah, we'll take it. yeah. So let's just start a little bit with just some basics or maybe people who aren't familiar. How would you define for the layperson within the realm of sports and competition? What is, you know, we see the title of people who are a mental skills coach for whether it's all the way on the professional, professional level or, you know, or below that. What is it and what was the genesis of professional sports, even thinking about it, accepting it and and now really fully supporting it? Yeah, well, it's important to distinguish that because one of the things that's so hard with mental skills training that the teams want to do is quantify it. It's really hard to quantify how much this helps, you know, mental skills training helps athletes, but I don't want to get ahead of myself. You know, this when I played from uh, 81 to 98, there were no mental skills coaches in baseball. The large contingent of coaches were probably 
and golf, tennis, Olympic athletes. And then Harvey Dorfman, who was a great mentor of mine, started working with Oakland in the late 80s. And then Ken Revisa, who recently passed away, was, you know, these guys were pioneers in the sport. And he was working with the Angels and then Tampa Bay. And it just slowly grew, I think, as teams were looking for a competitive advantage. You know, you had strength and conditioning came up as a way to improve performance in the 80s. And then nutrition came up in the 90s and mid 90s. And then that kind of gets swayed to the steroid era. And then right after that was the mental side. So I think it just kind of evolved into something that teams saw as a competitive advantage. And then they started to hire some former players to do this. But now the field has grown so that you know, you have to have some qualifications of a secondary degree in performance psychology. Most of the practitioners have a master's degree. Not many are, are licensed. There are people that are the head of the programs that are licensed, which is a good model. But I think that the team started to look for competitive advantage and started putting in the resources for this and their farm system starting down at the lower levels and then eventually those minor leaguers become big leaguers which is what happened with me in boston when i started the program in boston in 2004 you know pedroia ellsbury euclid papelbon you know all these guys came through the farm buckholtz came through the farm system and helped them win championships and so you know, that's the model. And I think that it's, like I said, it's really hard to quantify what it is, but you know that when somebody goes through mental skills training and their performance improves, that there's something different. You can quantify weightlifting, you can quantify velocity and bat speed and exit velocity, but this is just something that's really hard to quantify, but you know it's there when you see it. And so anyway, it was a very long-winded answer to your question, and I hope I answered it. Yeah, you did. And to piggyback off of that, I think it's one of the things that you're identifying, I think is very true for everybody when it comes to mental health, which will maybe make a distinction. It is, I find it, and maybe you find it too, it can be very challenging for people to, everyone wants to quantify everything. They want to see their progress. They want to see, and mental health is an ongoing moving target it's not like okay it's a destination i got to this point you know if if where if i have uh you know a sinus infection and i take this medication and then i'm you know i'm better i don't have the symptoms great but when it comes to mental health it's an up and down ebb and flow which makes it frustrating for people i think because you can't really put your finger on well what's the chicken what's the egg what's causing what, now I'm feeling good, now I'm feeling not so good, and sort of this like just, uh, it's messy, and that's really life. I mean, life is gray and life is messy. You know, at risk of sounding, you know, like Chris Kringle or something, or like being really negative, I mean, I I think we can acknowledge that for teams, again, I'm going to come off sounding so negative, at the end of the day, you know, teams, businesses, organizations, they care about a bottom line. And, you know, let's call a spade a spade, you know, mental skills, if it's going to help us, like you said, give us a performance edge, help our bottom line, bring in higher performance, which will bring in revenue, then great. I mean, I, I hate to say it, but if it wouldn't do that, then it's not necessarily altruistic that, hey, we think it would be nice for our players to have this if it wouldn't produce that edge, then is it fair to say that it wouldn't happen? Yeah. And I think that, you know, there are some teams who don't have a full-fledged program because they either don't want to put the resources into it or they're not sure that they can validate it. You know, look, it's really hard to reach, you know, as a practitioner in my private practice, people come to me because they want to perform better. In baseball, you know, when the resource is there, the players always go toward the physical or the fundamental aspect first. You know, they don't come to me and say, I want to play better. It's kind of the last resort. And even with that, there's some reluctance to it. So the efficiency and and the buy-in to the program has improved, but it's still difficult. 
So when you're, you're talking about this from a, a, a macro level, if there's 200 players in a organization, 50 of those players are probably engaged in some form of mental skills training. And of those, I bet half of those are really the ones that are doing this, as you said, on a regular basis, because players look for quick fixes. And I think people do, you know, you mentioned it about, this is a process and it's something that you have to do every day. I remember my athletic director, Norm Kay, who's from Chicago, big Cubs fan. He said the toughest part about being good to experience being good every day. And I think that the mental skills is stuff that happens every day. It's not a one-time fix. And I think that's where players sometimes think this is going to help me play better now. And then I play better now to your reference of taking an aspirin. So I don't need it anymore. Well, you have to maintain it. So the bottom line, I think to wrap around this discussion, you know, what mental skills people teach or skills and strategies that help people with areas related to the mental aspects of performance, self-talk, self-regulation, proper goals and expectations, implementing imagery as a performance tool, you know, giving them skills and strategies to kind of prevent the valleys, if you will, because they're going to happen, but you don't want them to become something that they can't dig out of. And succinctly, I think, you know, mental skills is focusing on the right thing at the right time for the right reasons. I like that. I like that. And I think we can agree that there's a distinction between I mean, maybe there's overlap, but there's a distinction between mental skills training and then working on mental illness, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I, I mean, I don't prescribe or diagnose. I've been to therapy myself and I understand the benefits of that. And, and I think maybe that's why I got into this, because I know that it helps people through by talking about stuff and identifying areas, you know, those performance traps or personal traps that you have. But in athletics, this is applied sports psychology. This is about being able to identify the areas that make you uncomfortable or unconfident and then plugging in something to help with that. And mental health, you know, there's so many things that happen clinically with anxiety, depression. There's so many other variables that come into play. And pharmacology becomes a a way in which to help these people. You know, there's no performance pill that's going to help you play better. (laughs) Um, You know, maybe an injectable. No, I I shouldn't say that because of the (laughs) steroid era, but that helped them play better. So anyway, now this is a fascinating discussion. And we've only talked on one subject and we've already talked for 15 minutes. (laughs) So I'm curious. I have, for those who don't know, Bob has a great book that I very much uh, appreciated, uh, still appreciate, 90% mental. And I'm curious, was there a time where for yourself, like where in your career did it like click that, hey, this is a thing. <laughs> and, mm-hmm. and this is whether you knew like exactly how to give it over, or it was obviously a a journey and a process for you to figure it out. But what kind of experiences helped it click for you that, hey, this is an important part of my game and then important part of the people that I work with game? Yeah, well, for me, I think I, I started using imagery when I was in high school. My father used to have a Norman Vincent Peale book around that the father of positive thinking. And if you can see it and believe it, you can achieve it. So I started doing that just on my own. When you have success through the minor leagues and it's like, you know, you're better than everybody or not everybody, but the large group. And so you move up to the big leagues and then everybody meets a threshold where their ceiling of, okay, everyone's really good. What's the difference? And I knew that my self-talk was poor when I struggled or I was really anxious or focused on things that I couldn't control. And so I didn't understand the mechanics of it from a a research-based platform. And that's why I think going back to school was helpful for me. But I knew that I was on the mound and I had a negative thought. I had to get rid of it. (laughs) And so with many trial and error, I had a system that I used to 
to manage my negative self-talk, having a consistent routine, you know, consistent routines lead to consistent performance. And as you become a more of an elite athlete, your routines get honed. So you know exactly what you need to do. But, you know, for me, it was just kind of learning on my own through trial and error about this is when I need to slow down. This is when I need to take a breath. This is when I need to change my self-talk. In the book, I, I talk about being in the all-star game and had a good first inning and then an awful second inning and how I felt on the mound. And so even as a veteran player, I still had those same feelings and, and thoughts that I had as a young player. And I remember listening to an audio program uh, on a cassette tape. This would have been 85. So and on, we might have to educate some of our listeners what that is. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> a cassette tape with the old Walkman player. And yeah, but it was on one side was this meditative guided imagery. On the other side was positive affirmations and subliminal messages. And I listened to this thing every day at the ballpark. And I really believe that, you know, I went off. I pitched 44 innings, gave up five runs, got put on the roster, went to spring training, pitched 20 scoreless innings, made the team. And change happened from the inside out. I didn't do anything physically, but I knew that I had started to change my focus, became more clear. My thinking became more positive. My images became more consistent. So I wanted to share that in the book. I wanted to share my experiences of my struggle and my lessons learned as a player, which I shared with the, the guys in the book, Lester and Rizzo and Andrew Miller and Rich Hill, so that it could normalize athlete struggle. These are some techniques and strategies, and this is how it paid off. Wow, yeah, that's great. And I, I want to, if I can remind everyone, that this is not just about baseball, major leagues. This is so relevant to all of us, not only to hear that, people on the big stage struggle but this completely plays out you know quote unquote in the real world where there are like you said you didn't do something different so many of us want something external to be different and that's going to change outcomes when in reality the majority of the time it's change that happens within us and that's what's in our control and that will translate into things being different, not being so focused on something external changing. You sort of started to answer uh, a question that I had on my mind is, well, at a certain level in every competition, every sport, they're great athletes. You know, they're physical specimens and they're great athletes. They've reached this, this level. What would you say are some of the things that separate the great from the good mm. um, how they respond to failure really I, I think when you know you hear oftentimes people oh so-and-so can't get out of his own way it's because he won't let go of something he can't control anymore and those are outcomes you know the the great players maximize their successes and minimize their failures they expect that over time they're going to be better. Now, it doesn't mean they don't go through doubts. You know, I mean, I remember talking with Paul Molitor, who's Hall of Famer, ninth on the all-time hit list. We were teammates in Minnesota. And I remember asking him one time, did he ever lose his confidence? Did he ever feel like he couldn't hit? And he said, if I'm 0 for 12, I feel like I'm never going to get another hit. I feel like this is a guy that's ninth all-time. So if Paul Molitor's thinking that, people think about it. However, why he's a Hall of Famer is he said, but when that happens, I bunt for a hit or I try to hit the ball to the right side through the hole just to, to get back on track. So he knew what his strengths were to get him going again. Instead of trying to control the results, he went back to the process. And that's what great players do. Again, you, you remember your successes. The people that 
remember their failures, they're prone to repeat them again. Oh, the last time I pitched here, I stunk. Or the last time I played this hole, I hit it into the water. As we know, that self-talk is just not an internal dialogue. It's also those snapshot pictures that happen in our mind that nonverbal, we create these images. So I think that the elite players remember their successes, expect good outcomes, and they're good to themselves in a way that you know, I remember Harvey Dorfman used to always sign off talking to the players saying, be good to yourself. And I think that's what we all need. You know, we all need to be good to ourselves as humans. We're human and we have flaws and things happen, but you got to be kind to yourself. And I think that the really good athletes are kind to themselves. They don't beat themselves up over something that they did or didn't do. They let it go and move on. Yeah, that's great. And I love this because I very much believe that sports and athletics are like a little fishbowl, like a microcosm of real life that, you know, within the game on a macro level, the organizations and all that, but each of these individual experiences is like, it has a reflection as a parallel, you know, in real life. I love, you know, what you said about Paul Molitor and one of my takeaways from that is, is that a lot of times we, myself included, I'll like dig my heels in and say, well, the only way that I'm going to be successful is if I do it this way. So if he's used to hitting ropes up the middle or doubles or whatever it is going opposite way. And then I'd like, you know, I'm very hyper-focused that it has to be this way. And what he did, he had the flexibility to say, well, this is not happening right now. Instead of like, just, no, it has to be that way. Let me find something, even if it means bunting, even if it means, you know, poking it through on the right side, let me just get something going and not, you know, sticking to my guns. It has to be that way. Yeah. So I really like yeah. that. Yep. Yeah. Do adaptability. You, adaptability. Yes. Yes. Do you, you know, you, you've worked beyond baseball too, but. I would say within baseball, without baseball, do you find that there are certain either sports or positions where the mental aspect of the game is heightened? It's more important. Like I would think, you know, someone like a pitcher, it's so hyper, like the focus and the attention is all on the pitcher or the batter. It's a very, you know, it's focused on that player at that time, as opposed to maybe, I don't know, more of like a football or something like that, where there's, I mean, they're both team sports, but what do you what do you think? yeah the, well the individual you know golf where you have time any sport where there's time to think <laughs> and you know the our thoughts happen so quickly i could be a basketball player and you could give me i could be old for seven and i get the ball and i'm like you have that instant automatic thought don't miss it and you miss it so it does happen in fluid sports like that or hockey where you get a breakaway and you're coming in and you that little man, I call that negative voice, the little man's like just pops in your head and you end up missing the shot. But I think the individual position as a pitcher, we have time to think between each pitch or a hitter between each pitch or a golfer between each shot. I think those are the ones. And even, you know, I work with a skater and she can be in the middle of a routine and she's thinking, don't, when you skip a jump, they call it popping a jump. Don't pop the jump. So I think that the individual sports certainly have, have more of a prominence in the mental skills training or positionally, at least. Most of the people on the baseball team that I talk to are pitchers for that reason. I bet it's probably three to one pitchers to position players because position players are always, if they get a hit, they feel good. And not until they really slump, because generally when they slump, they go to the cage and hit more. And what they need to do is be thinking about what their thoughts are and how those thoughts are equating to performance. So my experience is that sports where there's time to think between activities, that's where the little man creeps in. And that's why I call you got to seal up the cracks. You got to seal up those mental cracks that prohibit, you know, your best performance. And, and we know that the more we try to not think of something, <laughs> yeah. that the more we think of it. Right. So if I'm at the free throw line and I'm telling myself, don't miss it, don't miss it, don't miss it. And then I try to say, don't think about that. Don't think about that. Don't think about that. 
then that's all I'm going to think about. Yep, exactly. Well, I really believe, you know, the whole cognitive triangle, thoughts, feelings, behaviors, you know, I just really use that a lot because it's easy to explain to a a player my thought, I got to drive in this run with, you know, there's no outs and a guy in third, I got to drive him in leads to a feeling of increased effort level and maybe a little tension, which leads to a behavior of trying too hard or expanding your zone. So really working from that model. And so thought part of this is really important in what I teach players and athletes. Right. And we just finished when we're recording this now, we're actually just finished the world series and, and we can talk about the world series and the Braves. but I'm curious, you know, in every sport, you see this where when it comes to crunch time, when it comes to the playoffs, it's like this magical thing that all of a sudden, like everyone just steps it up or they're playing, you match like the level of the competition. If you know you're playing a team that's, you know, on paper is not so good, then you sort of play to that. What I'm curious, what your thoughts on it, like what clicks, like what makes, nothing actually is different. You know, they're the same player, they're the same people. Right. Yeah. What happens? Well, I, I think that, you know, the focus in playoff baseball is about winning. You know, you mentioned earlier, to be frank, during the baseball season, teams, players try to win, but they're also trying to put up numbers and it's about them. When you get to the postseason, it's about one thing. The focus on team becomes greater, at least in baseball. And so I think when you see these moments in the World Series, players rising up to the moment, they some players like to be in those moments, some players don't. But collectively, you look at the championship teams, the teams that there's the swell of whatever you want, karma, chemistry, that sweeps over when the Cubs won in 16, they had this feeling of, you know, it was cohesive and players, it was just kind of unstoppable momentum. When the Red Sox won in 2004 to break the curse, they were down to the Yankees three games to to nothing and came back and won. So there's a swell of momentum and, and that momentum is contagious. And I think that players feed off. You look at Jim Leritz, the players that have been in, playoff heroes that had average careers or below average step up in those moments and make things happen. And I don't know, I love watching playoff sports at any level, especially hockey, where everything is so magnified. And I really think, and going back to your earlier comment, what makes the difference between the good and the great, the elite players really can focus sharper in those moments because they're not overwhelmed by the moment versus the the player that gets swept away. So it goes back to that distraction, external distraction of the significance of the game. And whether it's a World Series game or playing on the backyard, ground ball is a ground ball. But it's the player's response to that situation and perspective of that that changes their focus. And some players step up to that. Some players don't. And I think that has a very much a, a real world application of when we're in a pressure situation at work, at home, anything where there's, you know, does the moment overwhelm us or not? While you were talking, I was reminded of that scene in, what was it, Miracle? Or Miracle about the, the U.S. hockey team? Yeah. Where he was saying, again, again, again. again. Yeah. And, you know, there's no name. There's no name on the back of it. It just says USA. And, yeah. you know, that's where we're a team. And when you can really buy into that, um, then you'll likely have more success. I think, you know, just rereading Legacy about the All Blacks and they talk about leaving the jersey in a better place and having a purpose greater than yourself. That's when the team comes together. And that's also what we need to do in life. You know, having a purpose greater than us, helping people. It feels good to help people. And that's why I think we do what we do is we're helpers and it feels rewarding to do that. But I think that having a purpose higher than ourselves is what happens when teams win championships. And when individuals really start, I think, from a worldview, become happy. You know, when you have a purpose, 
it gives you fulfillment and finding that purpose. I think there's a lot of people that struggle with finding that purpose. And I know I did it as an athlete transitioning from being a baseball player for my whole life to at 38 years old going, who am I now? Who am I without baseball? And that part is difficult. And people that change jobs or careers or going through a divorce, who am I without this spouse? So yeah, I think you had started saying it that earlier, mental skills are life skills. We all use them. And one of the best compliments I got about my book was that it wasn't a baseball book. It was a success book with a baseball background. And I thought that was really interesting because we all use self-talk. We all can take a breath and slow down. We all can set goals and have proper expectations. We can all, you know, change our perspective on situations. We can try to eliminate distractions, whether it's alcohol or TV or food or the news or whatever it is, you know, learning how to control those things. So these are life skills. I know you believe that, but everyone's, you know, I had a client, a dad of a PGA golfer, read the book and called me and and said, hey, do you think this works for golf? And I'm like, yeah, of course it does. You know, this works for life. These are life skills. So, yeah, thank you. And you said a lot in there. I mean, with the identity was something that I was really thinking about, which you hear about a lot, that when someone is so closely identified with what they're doing, in this case, it's a sport. So if everything I've been doing since I'm eight years old is, is football, is basketball, and then there comes a time where I'm not doing that anymore, then if I put all my eggs into that basket, that is my identity. And then I lose that, whether it's through injury or whether it's uh, retirement or whatever it is. And then, you know, I don't have that. So I would imagine it's in, incumbent on players, but all of us and whatever we're doing to have a little diversity as far as like what our identity is. We all have different hats and different roles and different and like you said finding purpose if we put it all into this even if it's amazing and we're great at it and we're elite at it at that moment you know that's not sustainable forever yeah no i I call them healthy distractions i try to encourage the athletes to find balance to read do art i mean the artwork that you see behind me listeners can't see I did that. I painted that when I was on the road because it was a healthy distraction. And again, there's a lot of players that go and volunteer time at children's hospitals when they're on the road. And those things make a huge impact. I mean, having a balance of some healthy distractions is important to not be tied to your work or to a slave to whatever it is, especially, you know, when I know your dad, how many children do you have? Five. (laughs) so you're a dad of five so you're busy but I think being a dad is a rewarding thing because you you talked about one of your hats but when you're at the office you're at work when you're home you're a dad and so the here's the mental skill thing is John Kabat-Zinn talks about it no matter where you are you're there But are we really there when you're really home being a dad are you really there or you're in the office And I think that if you're at the ballpark and you're focusing on the pitch coming in, are you really there? And I think that's the key to, as I've gotten older, is really being in the moment, understanding that, are you really present? And if you're really present, then you're not worried about your identity and fulfillment and you're just enjoying the present. It's a really hard place to get to, but... Yeah, it's a really interesting dichotomy because on one hand, you mentioned this earlier. On one hand, a player at some point has to care and teams have to care about performance. They have to care about numbers. They have to care about results. However, at the same time, if I'm so super hyper-focused on the numbers, my batting average, okay, I'm getting up to bat and my batting average is this. And like, let's say my batting average, you know, goes below this, then, you know, what are they going to think? And then this, am I going to be benched? Am I... But at the same, so if I get so focused on the numbers, then I won't be in that moment and I won't feel part of that. I won't be in that team mode and I'll get stuck in my head. But 
if I don't perform, then there are some real, you know, consequences of not having certain results because they do care about the results. So it is like an interesting dichotomy. You have like both of those at play. And when I'm working with people, we're talking about the, the difference between things being driven by values versus driven by results. So if I'm only focused on results, then if it's going well, fantastic. If it's not, then I'm toast. Uh, mm -hmm. If I focus on values and I do everything in my power to focus on that, then I could feel good about that. Now, maybe I'm not happy about the result, but if I did everything, I think it was John Wooden who used to say that to his players about not really caring about the outcome of the game, but more focused on if you did everything you can to prepare and to work and to practice and put everything out there on the floor, then you can walk away feeling good. Yeah, I don't think, I think Wooden never mentioned winning. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I think it's caring without caring. Tim Galway, who wrote The Inner Game of Tennis, has a great paragraph at the end of the book where he tells a story that happened to him. Essentially, he uses the word abandon, that you abandon the concern for consequence. You know, it's caring without caring because it does mean a lot. But the more you focus on it, the, the greater you're distracted from it. So how do you care without caring? And that's really hard. But I think that's the dichotomy that you talked about. And it's really hard to get to that point. I remember reading, you know, I think it was Bob Rotella talking about putting. And he goes, you got to putt like you don't care if you miss it. That's really hard to do. But when you do that, you make more of them. And so... It's really hard. Yeah. 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 You know, there's a couple of like specific instances in baseball, actually. Maybe it's an unfair question. I'm thinking of three instances. Bill Buckner, mm. who I believe, I mean, I saw this on some documentary. I don't know if it's 100% true that allegedly he was wearing underneath his glove. He was wearing a Cubs batting glove on that play but that's for a different mm -hmm. time. I think of Bartman and Moises Alou and the reaction and then the fans reaction and the team's reaction collapsed. And I think of Rick Ankiel. Mm. And those are all, you know, unfortunate outcomes. We don't have enough time to really dissect it all, but in any of those situations, so if we were able to pause, you know, Again, I'm going to be selfish. I'm a Cubs fan, so I go straight to that. If we were able to pause, that happened. You're able to have like a five-minute chat with Moises Alou, <laughs> you know, in that moment. Or get on the big screen and say something to everybody. Like, what might have helped if people had a certain mentality in that moment? Or Rick Ankiel, when he's going through those struggles. And Bill, like, what could be different that it doesn't then... We all like feel the collapse about to come, even mm -hmm. though it's not there. I'm curious. Mm -hmm. Well, the one thing with Buckner, I hadn't heard about the glove, but there was really eerie is that he had an interview on TV days or weeks before that. And he said, I just hope I don't have a ball go through my legs. And it happened. So that is just amazing. But to Bartman, yeah, that's just a fascinating phenomena because the whole place thought the same thing. You know, the whole ballpark, not only the players, but then when the events that happen after that, but they call it a precipitating event, something that happens that changes the tide. And so to your point, what would I say? Well, the thing that came to mind was the past doesn't equal the future. So, okay, all those Cubs things that happened that doesn't mean it's going to happen now, number one. Number two, you know, it's no different than what if Alou had gone up and dropped the ball? It would have been an error and Alou's the goat and everyone, you know, would they have thought the same thing or is it because they got robbed because the fan interjected that that's unfair? If a fan does it, that's unfair. That shouldn't happen. And this goes back to the expectations. I think, you know, in real world stuff, when we create an expectation of how people should behave or something should happen, we're becoming too rigid because why should we expect things to be a certain way? But anyway, so I would say 
again, I'm a long answered guy, I guess, but the past doesn't equal the future. Let's make the next pitch. Let's win the next pitch. We still got control of the game. Let's just get the next out. But what happens is the future comes in. Oh my God, what if? I hope this doesn't happen. The feeling of, you know, oh my God, here we go again. And sure enough, here we go again. Was Dusty the manager of that team? Now, I believe it was Luke Pinello. 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 Yeah. As you're talking, I'm thinking like it might be nice that baseball can have timeouts. <laughs> because, I mean, not because it's, it's slow enough already. <laughs> yeah. But like timeout to like, okay, let's regroup guys. But, you know, they don't. Yeah. Really, don't well, know. I mean, I think that was unfortunate. With Buckner, that error resulted in them winning the game. So it wasn't, you know, it was the world series but to the next day they still had a chance to win and they got rained out and then they played again but the momentum did shift they had a clinching play that didn't happen and and that's what you know you talk about the characteristic of performance is resilience how do you respond when you get punched you know that's what someone says you don't know how tough you are until you get punched into the face and that's what Revisa used to say you know you got to get punched in the face to see how you respond to stuff. And that determines how good a player you are. And teams that respond to getting punched in the face, that's resiliency. And you see resilient people in the world all the time. People that fight cancer and come back. People that have horrible things happen that they overcome that. There's resilience every day in the world. But a lot of people don't respond well to getting punched in the face. And that's where the mental skills come in. You know, so I think to your point a little earlier about the past doesn't equal the future. The whole idea of there's a team curse sort of reinforces Mm -hmm. that. I mean, for you growing up, going to Cubs games, what were we called? We were the lovable lovable losers, losers, right? Therein lies the the layer. Therein lies the self. Well, it goes back to self image and identity. You know, uh, Muhammad Ali. What do we know Muhammad Ali as? What did he say to himself? I'm the greatest. Right. I'm the greatest. I'm the greatest. And he said it to everyone. And he said it enough to himself that he believed it. His identity was I'm the greatest. Ted Williams, greatest hitter who ever lived. Chicago Cubs, lovable losers. The Red Sox prior to 04, you know, going to disappoint everybody. You're going to lose again. And when I was at Fenway, when it was 3-0 Yankees, I was working for Nesson, and everyone around the ballpark was like, this is over. Peter Gammons was talking about how the Yankees were going to play in the, the next round and in the World Series, and, you know, everyone thought it was over. And then Robert stole the base, and they had other things happen. Ortiz hit a home run. But when Robert stole the base, all of a sudden things changed. And the other thing that I'm just going to go off on another tangent, you know, you, you talk about karma or whatever it is. The Red Sox, when I was with that team in 13, that was the year of the, the Boston Marathon bombing. And the year the Astros won, Houston got crushed by a major hurricane the year the trade center the Mets were in the World Series so there's things that happen culturally that start to bond the city and I know firsthand with the Red Sox it was Boston Strong that became part of our team mantra and then we started believe one more Johnny Gomes used to say yeah we're one day closer to winning the World Series and we have the parade and and we won games that we came from behind and it was like, yeah, I don't think you can develop it. It happens organically, but when it does, it's really cool to ride that wave, you know? Yeah. That's fascinating. And I think it might be fair to say, I think baseball, maybe even more than other sports, it's not uncommon superstitions, you know, not stepping on the fall line or this bat, this glove, this routine, I would venture to say that that is an attempt at trying to control an outcome by using something external as a way to try to control the outcome versus, well, it's, you know, that's a tightrope you're walking when you're trying to use something else to control an outcome. Absolutely. 
you, you said it well. That's why people in, in Chicago had their lucky seat when the Cubs won the World Series or their beads or their what they ate or what they wore. And I laugh all the time because I have a client that's really kind of superstitious in that way. And I said, all that doesn't matter, <laughs> that, don't you? But if that's what you need to do to feel better about controlling the uncontrollable and you think it's going to work, but you know, you have a little bit more control over this than what you think. It's not out to some power in the universe. This is within your control. But oh yeah, I try to not have any superstitions, but I know a lot of very superstitious players. And when that didn't happen, they were lost, which was really sad. You know, to your point of when you lose that crutch, who am I then? <laughs> right. Now, we, we, spoke about, we spoke about some championships. What do you, from a mental skills perspective and attitude, and again, I think this can apply into everyone's life to some degree, what do you think makes it so hard to be a dynasty from like an attitude, you know, mental skills perspective? Because you see it time and time again. So we hit it, we did it, we got it. I'm not talking about the ability to hold on to certain players and contracts and all that. And, you know, it's a money thing. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you have the same core and you have that team, but for some reason it's really difficult to repeat, to have a dynasty. Because players evolve and change. That's a great question. And you're right. I mean, some, sometimes it's not about retaining the players due to money. You know, the, the twins lost a lot of players because they couldn't or wouldn't pay them. And so, yeah, taking that out of the equation. So my belief in what happens is that the motivation becomes important. Say, take the Cubs in 2016. Theo came in, they lost games, they drafted, they built this team, traded for Rizzo, Baez, Schwarber, Contreras, you know, have this great young nucleus of sign luster, you know, they get all the pieces in place and they win. And what happens the next year? Well, in that reference, I think they won. So it's like, okay, we won. Now what? You know, when you reach the peak, how many peaks are there? And that's what's remarkable about Tom Brady is he probably feels like he's never won a Super Bowl. And for him to keep, he's won seven, but it doesn't, you know, he's like, no, we're going to win another one. So I think to answer, I love this question because I think you look at baseball from a team standpoint, you win a World Series, say a player's going to arbitration, and now he goes from making 200000 to $2 million. His life's just changed. He's won a championship. Now he's got money. Now what's his motivation? What's his carrot? A player that, you know, is a veteran player that, had a really good year and things went well. He now gets that piece. Oh, now I've done it. So I think it's about, I think it's about motivation and you know, the ability to sustain your own level of play to get an extrinsic reward. Yeah. And I know, and I know, you, I know what you happens, know. the intrinsic, the intrinsic changes to become more external, I think. Right. And I know you don't have that much more time. But no, this, I, yeah, we got five or six minutes. Okay. This is so fascinating to me because I've always wondered this. And I watched the, the, the docuseries about the Bulls. And, you know, when you think of someone like Jordan, you think of someone like Brady, you think of someone like Kobe, you think of someone like these, like, really elite superstars that have repeated. And I agree with you that, yeah, maybe they feel like they, he hasn't won. So if I was in their head, not that I really want to be in their head, but <laughs> I, I just wonder someone like Jordan, I'm not putting any judgment there. Could they ever feel happy and satisfied? Because if it's dependent on, I have to never feel like I won or accomplished anything to keep that drive going. I think in the docuseries, he was sort of like, he would find Jordan would like find these little things to like get mad about to, yeah. to motivate him. So does that, mean that someone like Brady and Jordan and Kobe and whoever else is that like in their own quiet moments do they not feel accomplished and happy because if they allow themselves to feel that then they're somehow going to lose their 
motivation. I think this is true for a lot of people and maybe in a little different sense that if a lot of people will think, well, if I don't consistently criticize myself and be super critical, then I'm not going to be motivated. Everything's just going to go to pot if I don't do that. Now, ultimately, that doesn't actually help them get motivated. They just, you know, kick themselves when they're down and, and they stay down. But that was always like a very, like, I was so, so super interested about these elite athletes, if they can feel that. Well, I would agree with you. I think in my own world of performance, I know that in order to be really focused and and elite at that level is you have to have blinders on and you have to eliminate distractions, you know, whether it's expectations, media, it's all noise. And so you have to have tunnel vision. And I do believe that they're not happy. Once they have that success, it's like, okay, we got to do it again. And the expectations, they don't, they're not able to really enjoy it because the expectations continue to mount. Okay, you did it once, you're the greatest, you got to do it again. So in order to keep that identity or to, to keep that level of performance, they have to keep focused on the goal of the task. And to do that, you can't, Ichiro, Ichiro had the same, you know, he was so focused on outcomes that he didn't enjoy any of his success because he's always looking to strive for more. So again, that goes back to, you know, you want to strive for success and en- enjoy the rewards of that. But if you let yourself enjoy it too much, you lose focus. So the dichotomy of how do you achieve greatness and enjoy it? You know, um, I don't know, you have to, Look at Bill Gates or Zuckerberg or these people that are billionaire Amazon. When you when you build it up, what else is there? How do you stay motivated? You know, more is not always doesn't make you happier, right? More money, more trophies, more doesn't make you happier. That's but true. so to your point, I think you have to be, you know, I mean, I love watching Tom Brady play, but I wonder where his balance is in life with being a dad and a spouse because he's so, you know, football. And then how do you turn that off when you're done playing? I've always wondered that. And it just goes to show that, you know, a person can make minimum wage and be happy and they can be miserable and they can be a billionaire and be happy and be miserable. It's not about, certainly it makes it hard when you have a tough life situation. I'm not minimizing that. Exactly. Yeah. But that, but that doesn't mean that having a different life situation is going to like, that's going to magically make me happy. You can be miserable in any which way. Okay. I know we got to wrap up and there are other things that, you know, I think are very good conversations just about, you know, mental health amongst acceptance and stigma and minor leagues. Is I'll, I'll, I'll come back on. We'll do it again. Yeah. yeah. This yeah. was really, really enjoyable. If anyone wants to hear more about the book and the, the, the things that you're doing, how can they find you? Well, you can go to my website, bobtooksbury.com. I'm on Twitter. I don't put a whole lot on there, but I am on Twitter. I don't even know what my handle is. I think at Bob Tewksbury. And uh, yeah, those are the two things to reach out and find. And if you're interested in the book, it's on Amazon. And I think they reprinted it in hardcover again. So that's good. But no, look, I, like I said earlier, I think you have a wonderful podcast and a YouTube channel i think you're sending wonderful information out there keep up the good work and i'd be happy to come on again when we can talk more because this hour just flew by (laughs) yeah same here thank you i appreciate it very much i i hope everyone enjoyed it as thoroughly as as i did and got something out of it thank you so much okay big guy 